From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you Goldman bets on banking as a service, British banks stay bullish despite lockdown take two, and Ant's record-breaking IPO has been blocked by the Chinese regulator. All this and more on today's show. Before we start, we wanted to let you know how you can stay ahead of your competitors with our brand new competition. You and your team can win free 11FS Pulse licenses for a whole year. 11FS Pulse gives you access to over 3,600 user journeys from more than 430 brands across finance, fintech, and digital technology. Whether you want to analyze, benchmark, or build customer-centric finance propositions, Pulse gives you the tools to do that. Head to info.11fs.com forward slash Pulse competition to get involved. Okay, let's start today's show. Welcome to episode 477 of Fintech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host for today, Sam Wall. How are you doing, Sam? How are you holding up over the... Day three of the U.S. election. It's awesome. Have you slept? (laughs) I slept last night. I took like eight sleeping pills, so I feel great today. (laughs) I'm very glad you're awake and, and with us after that many... All right. Well, we'll we'll try and stay away from it as much as possible. Give you this as a bit of a breather. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> uh, we're joined by some awesome guests who are joining us remotely today. Um, first up, making his fintech insider news debut, we have Mike Douglas, VP of Strategy at Galileo. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for joining us, Mike. Uh, whereabouts are you? My notes say it's a little early for you. Uh, so I'm I'm based out of Salt Lake City. It is um it is almost 10 a.m. So I, I don't have any excuse to not be awake. But uh, you know, so I've I've got a good kind of 15 20 minutes under my belt. Hopefully, should be speaking uh, coherently at this point. <laughs> well, um, I'm glad you didn't take as many sleeping pills as Sam last night. So uh, you're you're with us and you're wide awake. Brilliant. Thank you for joining us. Um, also making a welcome return uh, from her new role, we have Emily Nicole, fintech correspondent at Financial News. Welcome back, Emily. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Working from home, as always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I haven't been to London since March. I assume it's still there. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's all in one piece almost after, you know, we've gone into lockdown now. So I think everybody tried their hardest to mess everything up as much as possible on the final night in Oxford Circus. But I've, I have seen the pictures. It looked like it got a little messy over there. Yeah, I think it did. But I stayed <laughs> inside. I was good. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that, that, that's sensible. Um, All right. Well, uh, without further ado, let's get started. So uh, the first story is this is Goldman's bet to break into a $32 billion industry serving the world's biggest corporations. So the firm has just released software that allows clients to embed banking services into their own products as part of a push to break into the $32 billion a year industry managing cash for big corporations. By connecting directly into Goldman's corporate platform, clients can open accounts quickly and take advantage of the bank's automated payments program, which it created for itself as its first client. The quote here from uh, Harry Morthy, I believe that's pronounced right, uh, Goldman's global head of transaction banking. They said, there's this butterfly effect that will kick in after we roll this out. It allows us to acquire clients of our clients, allows us to seamlessly be integrated in the fabric of banking and corporates. The transaction banking effort, which officially launched in June earlier this year to outside clients, has already garnered $28 billion in deposits and more than 200 clients. Um, So, Mike, let's come to you first on this. Uh, You're a banking as a service provider yourselves at Galileo. So what do you think of this move by Goldman? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So um, just to kind of kick this off, I think it's worthwhile reflecting on kind of a broader industry trend here, which was outlined uh, quite quite well by um, Simon Taylor on 11FS uh, and, and the article covering this move. What I'd say here is that the industry context worth noting is that there has been a long-term massive mismatch between the quality and and usability of banking software and IT and uh, corporate's other IT uh, services and software, almost to the point where it feels like the millennial, the first time they have to fax in a medical document to a medical provider, and they're kind of scratching their head wondering what decade they live in. Uh, On the banking side, what this looks like is you have these batch interfaces where you have to do batch load processing Fortunately, we are starting to move away from that and into more kind of API-based kind of interaction model. Uh, But it's more than just that, that, you know, these banks need to do. They need to make sure that their APIs are intuitive, that they have kind of logical, you know, kind of input outputs um, and that they're well-documented. And and as Goldman has done is they've they've created a a developer sandbox, which really lets uh, their clients test this out and integrate well to it. So 
So I think this is part of a very kind of positive and favorable industry trend. For Goldman specifically, I think it makes a ton of sense. Um, there's there's a lot of kind of money here. And that's, you know, on a standalone kind of PL basis, this move makes a lot of sense. Uh, that said, there's also a lot of kind of data and learnings that they're going to be able to generate from this, that they'll be able to leverage uh, for other things that they're trying to do in the banking space. Yeah, I mean, Goldman's been doing some interesting moves across a lot of areas that aren't perhaps traditionally Goldman spaces. And this is just the latest in a line of those as well. So Goldman's kind of proved itself in recent years of being quite an, quite an innovative beast insofar as one can call a, a bank of that size an innovative uh, company. Um, Sam, did you have anything you wanted to add on that? Yeah, I'll tell you, um, right now in the, and I'm speaking for the US, banking as a service is hot as it comes, um, even ahead of buy now, pay later, shockingly, right? Because everybody seems to want to be in buy now, pay later. Um, but banking as a service, man, when this story broke, my inbox um, filled up. I probably had six emails from executives at different banks um, of all scale, too, by the way. Um, saying, hey, uh, my CEO just shot me a <laughs> email saying, what's our strategy? Uh, which did make me smile because I'm like, yep, yeah, you're you're behind. I'm sorry. I don't know what else to tell you. Um, and just to put this on a different scale, you know, and, and, and Michael, I don't know if you saw about uh, two days later, Radius Bank said, hey, we're doing this too. We've got a really good, we've upped our game when it comes as banking as a service. And Michael smiled at that because he does know how it is interesting, right? So you've got a company that it was Lending Club, right? That bought uh, Radius Bank, um, and they came out and said we've we've improved our services too when it comes into this space. So you know this is a play at all scale, but when you talk about someone they, the scale of Goldman, I think they're going to do great with this. Yeah, I mean, I, I know about the banking as a service trend. I think, you know, for anybody in our industry, you you would kind of have to have had your eyes closed to have missed it over the last sort of 12, 24 months. Is it interesting that Goldman's gone into transaction banking with this first rather than, because a lot of the propositions we've seen thus far, or at least that I've seen, um, and, and I'm not an expert in this area, have been almost consumer facing. So banking is a service platform that lets third parties, you know, enable customers to open an account or get a credit card through them. Is there much in the transaction space? Um, it sounds like not, Mike, <laughs> given what you said about faxing medical reports. But does anybody have a perspective on that, on whether Goldman's picked the right place to start here? Yeah, so I guess maybe to um, chime in here, what I'd say is a lot of time it's it's these back-end things that are less consumer-facing that are more antiquated and have more kind of upside room. Um, I think there's there's actually something really interesting here that Goldman's tackling. It's It's got um, some large incumbents in the space and I would categorize this for this particular kind of use case as a potentially, call it a, a disruptive innovation and, and apologies for the buzzword here. But uh, the reason I say so is, is typically what happens with disruptive innovation is that you have someone new who comes in and rather than just doing the existing set of services better than the existing providers, they actually add a new kind of vector of competition and a new kind of vector of differentiation. So a lot of the existing providers, uh, they focused on kind of two core value propositions. One is around this kind of liquidity and access to your cash as needed. And the other is more around kind of this uh, return optimization relative to, you know, kind of risk and duration considerations of, of what you're investing in. And I think Goldman can, can match what's, what's being done by the existing incumbents on, that, on those vectors. But the new kind of level of, of uh, differentiation that it can add is just this ease of use and, and, and flexibility of what they're offering their clients and that, as they as they really kind of unlock that, I think they're going to gain a lot of market traction in this space. And uh, as as noted in the report, you know, pulled together by Eleven FS, I, I think uh, there's a lot of upside for them here in, in this specific use case. Sam, did you have any any further thoughts to add to that? Yeah, the one thing I would add is it's interesting when you look at Goldman because you know um, obviously shook the industry up, made a ton of noise when Marcus first came out. But Marcus is what about four years old now? If if I did my Sam maths right, which is usually wrong, by the way, but I'm somewhere in, in the region there. You know, it's, it's, it's a couple years old now and they've done a lot of products, but they're also going through a bit of a personnel shift. You know, some folks have moved on from that original team um, at Marcus. So I find this interesting that, you know, we get an announcement like this and you've got another um, shot fired across the brow, if you will, um, from, from Goldman. Um, they're proving that a very old dog I think they were founded around 1863, if I remember right, uh, can definitely innovate. And I agree with Michael. I mean, well done on, on their side. I've continued to be impressed by the team there. 
do you think that they are the most innovative of the biggest banks in, in the US or even globally? Ooh, in the US? Man, that's a good question. That's actually a really good question, Sarah. Why would you do that to me? <laughs> I don't know. I, I took I mean, eight sleeping pills last night. I already told you that. Man, so it was um, like I right, interview people for a living, you know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, you know what? I would say right now, as far as from a who do you want to be, well, we don't have stages anymore, right? Um, if we had conferences, again, and you had the really cool people that were on stage, you want it to be Goldman right now. I would say that. Yeah, I think they've done an, an excellent job. Um, I would say J.P. Morgan has definitely done a lot, though. You know, you can't forget uh, the power that J.P. Morgan has um, as the industry leader, I think, when it comes to banking. I still would would look at Jamie Dimon um, at, at Chase and say they're, they're still the beast to beat right now. I think it would be fair to say, though, that J.P. Morgan and, and Goldman are, are looking at different areas, which is yes. probably quite sensible. Um, if you think about it, obviously, J.P. Morgan's got that huge retail business, which makes sense for them to keep an eye on. Mike, did you have any concluding thoughts on this one? Yeah, so I, I actually really like this kind of move by Goldman Sachs for a number of reasons, one of which is the value of diversification for them as kind of a player in the investment space. You know, They're very excellent at this kind of thinking around optimizing risk and return and, and constructing a portfolio of, you know, optimally uncorrelated sets of risks that you're taking. And I think this uh, fits in with kind of that broader sort of theme of what they're trying to do here of, of pursuing an investment channel that will be um, relatively uncorrelated to the success of their core business and provide some, you know, kind of de-risking the core enterprise. Diversification. We all know that good business is about diversification of revenue, particularly at the moment, I would say. So um, it sounds like we're quite positive on that one, but we will obviously keep our eyes on it. Um, so on to our next story today. Banks stay bullish despite worsening pandemic. Um, so in particular, this is in relation to the UK, the UK's largest banks. So leaders of large banks were positive about the Q3 results across the board, pointing to improving economic forecasts, better than expected consumer recoveries and robust capital buffers, which leave banks in a much stronger position than they were during or just after the 08 financial crisis. Charges for bad loans slumped in Q3 and trading revenues boomed, which prompted many European lenders to upgrade their earnings forecasts. So I've got some specific numbers here. If anybody's interested, uh, we have NatWest here in the UK uh, reported an £8 million loss in Q3 2019. And the bank was expected to post a £75 million loss this quarter. It actually posted a profit before tax of £355 million. I do wonder about their accountant if their <laughs> numbers are that different. That's interesting. Um, Barclays uh, forecasted Q3 profit was around £200 million but final results were 610 million. Um, HSBC, on the other hand, called parts of its poor performance not acceptable, and its profit went down 36% year over year. Emily, I think you've probably got some thoughts on this one. I suspect you've been looking at nothing else for, for the last couple of weeks but these numbers. Yeah, I mean, so I chatted to one of your colleagues on Newsroom, Adam, earlier this week about all these things, and it's kind of everybody was expecting some pretty bad numbers from the banks across the UK in the third quarter and, and yet almost every everyone's surprised. And largely that was because most banks, if they were putting away higher provisions for bad loans during this quarter, obviously because of the pandemic, that was then offset somewhere else by revenue doing really well, mostly in trading. If we look at, bank, at Barclays, they had a really good quarter for their um, sales and trading division. Um and then elsewhere as well, if there were impairments for bad loans coming in already, they were lower than previous quarters. So overall, it was like a bit of a, a surprise from all four of those that you've just mentioned. Um, most banks also beat bottom line estimates from analysts uh, just overall, and profit shrinkages were smaller than we thought they'd be. HSBC is the, the one exception to that. Um, so it was a pretty good quarter, actually, all things considered. Do you think that it's actually just delayed, though, and putting off the inevitable? Because here in the UK, we've seen some numbers um, over over the past few weeks. I might get this wrong. You might you might know better to correct me, but I'm fairly sure that unemployment is forecast to hit about 11 percent or something before Christmas, um, which, uh, you know, you, you, I, I may that number may be a little inaccurate. But the point is the 
unemployment is forecast to rise quite dramatically over the next few months. We do now know that the government um, furlough scheme, which is what we have here in the UK, which uh, the government basically pays and subsidises wages for employees who are unable to work because the government has imposed restrictions, that will continue until March. Um, But that, on the other hand, we are now sitting in a four-week lockdown here in England, um, which, you know, it means all hospitality practically is shut, you know, travel is off again, uh, entertainment, that kind of thing. So do you think that actually they got their numbers wrong and it's going to be Q4, Q1 next year where we're going to see those those big dips and declines or those, those negative results that they'd thought? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't necessarily think it was the analysts that got their numbers wrong. I think that maybe banks were preparing for a better Q4, Q1 than than what we think we're now going to get because everything was kind of forecast for GDP to be rising by the end of this year. And now the even the Bank of England said in their monetary policy statement on Thursday that the Q4 GDP is now going to be really bad. And overall, probably for 2020, it's going to be about an 11% decline. And any kind of recovery, any kind of growth from where we're at now isn't going to come until next year. Um, so it's definitely, in my opinion anyway, I think this is going to be a one-off for the banks. We're not expecting them to be able to report such numbers that were this improved in Q4 or in Q1 because like you said as well with the support schemes now being extended businesses are now also able to apply for top-up loans from the government as well or from banks supported by the government which means lending is going to increase but also the, the probability of bad loans is also going to increase so they're going to have to put aside more money for those loans in the future as well so yeah it's, it's definitely I think a bit of an enigma of a quarter. <laughs> and we haven't even mentioned the B word, but I will I will let Sam speak. We'll just leave the B word to one side. We've got enough to worry about today. No B words. We, we will not use the B word. You know, and then you throw on top of this everything that's happening in the US. I mean, and the reality is the banks and their earnings over here all did incredibly well. You know, they had, when, when you looked at Q2 and the loan loss provisions that the banks were thinking they were going to have to do, and then you look at their earnings reports that they gave out for Q3, you know, pretty much across the board, all of them did stellar. However, you know, you can just take a snapshot of today in the U.S. So we're in day three or day 3000. I can't tell of a presidential election that, you know, we're still waiting on results for. We'll see how long this takes. Uh, we had 103,000 cases of COVID in a single day yesterday doing really well on that front. So, you know, there's so many unknowns in the US. And then just to make it even more interesting, because I had done a story on this earlier, you've got Goldman who has got a fine somewhere ranging between $4 billion to $10 billion. Um, it's a settlement. You've got Chase that had a, I think it was $920 million fine they paid off. You've got Citi that had to pay the regulators $400 million in a fine. Imagine how well they would have been doing if those fines hadn't stacked up either, you know? So it's just very interesting and volatile times in the U.S. also. So, you know, Q4 and going into Q1 of next year, I refuse to make any predictions. <laughs> Thank you just for not that, going Sarah. there. I, okay. I, because if anybody asks me, no, I won't go there. All right. I won't, I won't come to you for the annual blog post. <laughs> Emily, did you <laughs> want God. to add something on that? <laughs> yeah, I just, I was going to say, I think um, it's a very good point to make about the US-UK comparison here as well, because yes, all the US banks surprised, but um, pretty much all the forecasts at the moment point towards the dollar declining in strength soon, which is only going to be bad news for the US banks. Well, actually, it might be positive news for UK banks, because most of the trading divisions in UK banks and UK stocks do well when the dollar is strengthening or falling they kind of can move either way with it whereas in the US it doesn't really benefit them when all of their business is is losing its value across the world um so I think while we've been able to say you know JP Morgan's done really well and it's with its trading division and four-year revenues are going to be pretty high for from that specific division this year that's not predicted to last over the next few years especially with the um unpredictability of the election as well yeah. And, and one thing I should add in it, that is a, it's a sliver of maybe good news. Um, now that um, it's just not a presidential election we're going through, there's a lot of House and Senate seats that has come up. And the uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, secured his 
reelection and then came out, I believe the next day to say the number, our number one focus in the next month will be on a second stimulus. Um, so, which by the way, was a 180 degree turn on what he had said about two days prior to that, but hell, I don't care. Um, the fact that, uh, that has come back up and that there's a recognition, um, hopefully in DC that some sort of stimulus package is going to need to come out, um, to address the impacts of COVID and what it can do in the economy. To me, that's a, a silver lining. Yeah, we take them where we can. Um, Mike, did you have anything you wanted? Any final thoughts on this before we before we take a quick break? No, I, um, this this is an area of in terms of kind of evaluating across the pond bank earnings that I'm relatively less <laughs> familiar with. Um, I do think um, you know amidst all the churn that is going on, amidst COVID, amidst election, that's all that's going on. I think this is, I think it will prove to be an opportunity for the fintech sector. We've seen, you know. Really, the fintech phenomenon got its start in the 2008 aftermath of that crisis. And there are a number of things that have happened because of COVID, whether that's the accelerating the shift to digital, um, <clears throat> as well as, um, you know, accelerating as well the, the willingness to kind of move away from traditional big bank models and, and, and look at, you know, kind of newer upstarts uh, that I think will prove to be a continued boon for the fintech space. Yeah, and I think perhaps another boom there will be um, the banks, as we've just said, have re- recorded across the board very good results. But the banks have across the board, certainly in Europe, announced huge job cuts. And they are never people's favorite organizations. I suspect this may um, further count against them. And then that may drive more people to look for alternatives. Um, that's just, uh, you know, taking something that did happen in 2009. I've no idea if it'll happen this time. But just looking at the press today, people are rather unhappy that some large banks in the UK are cutting a thousand jobs <laughs> when they've made hundreds of millions of pounds worth of profit. So um, I think the the summary for all of our responses there is we're just not really sure what will happen next. We think this is an anomaly, but we'll, we'll come back to you again in Q4 and, and, and see what happened. And nobody is going to make anybody make any predictions. Um, on that note, we are going to take a quick pause here whilst we hear from our sponsors. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology, only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. Discover more at mytechsystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They're reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. The banking business model is broken. The question is, how can we rebuild it? Embedded Finance presents a massive opportunity for banks to play a new role in financial services ecosystem, offering more revenue streams, lower costs and higher margins. Our new report, Better Banking Business Models, Embedded Finance and the Path to Growth, is a must-read for banks considering the smartest next step. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service to download the report for free. That's bit.ly forward slash banking as a service, all one word, all lowercase. Okay, thank you for that. And on with the show. So our next story uh, takes us to another country yet again. Um, This is that Ant Group's IPO has been blocked in Shanghai. So China has suspended the $37 billion listing of Ant Group, which had been set to become the world's largest IPO, one day after regulators grilled Jack Ma, who founded the company. As we covered on last week's show, Ant was set to list on Thursday in Shanghai and Hong Kong in a record-breaking IPO. The Shanghai Stock Exchange said in a statement that Mr. Ma had been called in for supervisory interviews. It also said that there had been other major issues, including changes in the financial technology regulatory environment. Last week, Jack Ma ranted about the big banks in China, claiming they have a pawn shop mentality. It seems to have provoked the regulators into making changes that will impact his IPO. Uh, the People's Bank of China and China's banking regulator jointly released new draft regulations on online lending on Monday, which would oblige Ant to cap loans at the equivalent of $44,843, or one-third of a borrower's annual pay, whichever is lower, fund at least 30% of every single loan where they needed none before, and cap leverage at 16 to 17 times capital. 
Uh, the rules could also make issuing loans across the country's provinces harder, and analysts say they may dent AMP's bottom line. Um, so last week, Chris Skinner was on the show, uh, and as someone who's been a close follower of AMP Group and what it does, uh, we got his reaction on the new development. Let's hear from him now. The sudden shock move of the Chinese regulators and the People's Bank of China to block the IPO of Ant Group, the biggest IPO in history, may surprise many people, but it is not surprising in that the interests of commerce in China has to align with the interests of the nation's policymakers. And that is really where Jack Ma's comments caused issues because he was basically claiming that the regulators don't regulate for innovation and development. They regulate in an old people's way to manage risk. And it's been pointed out by many since he made that speech that he doesn't understand financial markets and um, the way in which financial markets need to be regulated, and more particularly that Ant Group has been uh, riding on the back of regulatory arbitrage to make profits by lending billions of dollars um, but never taking the risk on their own balance sheet. So between these two things, um, the way in which the statements were made um, and the fact that Ant Group is... Uh, managing between the regulators and the system and the banks, um, it didn't go down well. So it's not surprising really that the IPO has been stopped. Is it cancelled? No, it will come back um, probably in a f six months and maybe even bigger by then. So let's wait and see. Okay, so what do we think of that? Do, do, do people agree with Chris, first of all? I know when I first heard this story, I had a one-word summation, which was, damn, I mean, just you can imagine Jack Ma on stage saying this and feeling really good about himself and his handlers on the side watching their phones blow up <laughs> with calls of the equivalent of, the, you know, you are now going to the principal's office. Um, it, it is that is a sudden shift in attitude when it comes to the Chinese government and the regulatory side on this, because Jack Ma is a bit hero worshipped, obviously. It's an incredible story to go from being a teacher to, after this IPO, probably the richest man in the world or close to it. So I was, I was pretty shocked when it happened. To be blunt, I it it caught me completely off guard. And I, uh, it'll be interesting to see if at some point in the near future you see Jack Ma behind a microphone offering some sort of an apology. We'll see. Emily, yeah, what did you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, so today, or Thursday, Reuters wrote a really good article about looking at what happened behind all of this. They spoke to numerous officials and insiders and people within the regulatory body and who are close to Jack Ma to kind of get an understanding of what happened here, what happened when he decided to go and just say all that stuff on stage and basically dissing the regulators for not being innovative enough and then expecting his IPO to still go well. Um, basically, most people were just saying that they think he just exercised a bit too much hubris. He flew a bit too close to the sky, um, and he should have been more. Uh, he should have expected more of this to happen. Really, when if you if you outright claim your regulator is not doing a good job, despite the fact that your company has entirely benefited off it allowing you to do your good job in fintech, um, and there was also some really interesting stuff in there as well about how actually he's this isn't the first time that he's kind of made his way around a regulator and not really paid attention to the rules. Reuters alleged that um, with Ant Group's wealth management business, the regulators really wanted to ha hold some scrutiny on that. And he just kind of decided, well, I don't really fancy going through any of those processes. So he made his way around them to get that all through. So, I mean, the, so Chris's um, prediction that it was it's going to come back even bigger. I, I personally am a bit sceptical of that, hearing all of that from Royce's side. Yeah, I mean, it's like, why would you poke the bear? You're about to become the richest man in the world. Why would you poke the bear? I just, I don't really understand his decision. Um, oh, I, I don't know. You both want to go. Sam, you go first, then I'll come back to you, Emily. Yeah, I'll keep it really short. It's interesting about um, Jack Monher's persona, though, right? I mean, you've got a guy, just Google Jack on um, on on YouTube. You can Google Michael Jackson, Jack Ma. You can Google him basically anytime he did a major 
um, talk with his organization. He's, he's a larger than life type individual. It's a great success story, if you will, for China. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I, I, I think Emily's point about biting the hand that feeds you, a, a lot of that success was due to the, the Chinese government and regulatory side, more or less saying, and this one's going to be a winner. So um, I think they do have a major impact on what is going to come next for them and how successful they'll be. I kind of agree with Emily. I'm not sure about them coming back bigger coming out of this. Yeah. I mean, I think it's I think most people who have even half an eye on what happens in China would suggest that if the Chinese government and the Chinese regulator are not very happy with you, it doesn't really bode well, generally speaking. Um, Emily, did you did you still want to make that point? And then, Mike, I'll come over to you. Yeah, well, it's just that I think I think it might be a bit of a case of Jack Ma's, you know, getting a bit older. He's stepped away from the day-to-day running of Alibaba, so he might just be thinking a bit more relaxed about the whole process. And so now that Ant Group is one of his main focuses, at least for the rest of this year, he's just kind of thinking, not maybe thinking things as clearly through as he should do, um, and just kind of thinking that he's got a lot of sway where he probably doesn't have as much sway as he thought he did. Mm, yeah, no, that that makes sense. I suppose it's a little bit of the Prince Philip syndrome. I can say what I like because I'm old. It's fine. I've been there, done that. Um, Mike, what, what, uh, sorry, coming to you next. Uh, definitely a, a foot in the mouth moment for Jack Ma, but maybe abstracting a bit away from uh, specifically the, you know, what's going on with Ant. I think it really highlights something that's you know, just super key to keep in mind with, with um, kind of China as well as a number of other kind of jurisdictions and regimes within the kind of Asia Pacific area is just the primacy of um, the regulator and, and, you know, the viability of your business um, and, and some of the uncertainty that revolves around that. Um, certainly Galileo, we recently acquired by SoFi. We also uh, recently acquired um, eight securities out of Hong Kong. And this sort of regulatory uncertainty and making sure that you're kind of well aligned to, to the various kind of regulatory authorities is absolutely paramount in terms of making sure that we're set up to succeed. And I think, of course, in the UK, we can perhaps get a little bit blasé because our regulator here is is quite nice to us and actually quite wants to talk to fintechs and find out what should be done next. And if it's going to bring in new rules, it tends to think about, OK, well, who should we talk to to see how those rules, what impact they'll have? And, you know, we should get some fintechs in to discuss it and then we can produce some guidance. And I think maybe we get in the UK a little bit comfortable and then we see what happens in the rest of the world and you think, oh, the regulators aren't necessarily as friendly in other places um, as, as we have here. Or, or as forgiving in some instances. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I couldn't possibly speak to that. Um, does anybody have any final points on this one or shall I, shall I move us along? I think, um, didn't Jack step down and he said he was going to go back to teaching, if I remember right? And, but when? Um, I, I remember there was being a story about that, that he was getting ready to, he had talked about and tossed those ideas around. And I'm wondering if, you know, uh, he's looking back at that and going, damn it, <laughs> maybe I should have slid into that. Yeah. I'll go, before we air that, let's make sure that's true. But I'm almost 100% confident that's a true story. I mean, I just remember his very, very huge birthday party as yes. he was leaving Alibaba. They hired out that whole stadium for him. And it's just a bit like, I think I think he's just such a big figure and in China and also globally, he's a bit like their star child. And so he didn't think he was going to get hurt. Yeah. Mm. Yep. There's a lesson for you kids. You can always be told <laughs> off. You can always be told off by There's, the person in charge. Everybody oh. reports to someone. Everybody <laughs> has a boss. Everyone. All right. Well, um, let's take it uh, back to the U.S. Um Fast, a startup backed by Stripe, has apparently been discussing a billion-dollar valuation. So we may not have left hubris behind just yet, because Fast is only two years old. Um, its technology enables quick checkouts online, and apparently it's in discussions with investors about a new round of financing between $50 million and $200 million that could value the startup at as much as $1 billion. 
So Fast aims to solve the need to create a password and input payment information for every purchase from a new site when shopping online. Uh, in September, the company launched Fast Checkout to enable online shoppers to pay for goods from any website using any device without a password. So uh, same idea as uh, Amazon's one-click feature, really. Um, Fast technology is free for buyers, but the company charges sellers a transaction fee of around 3% to process payments. Um, it's got a lot of competitors. So PayPal Checkout does something similar. You've got Apple Pay, you've got Google Pay, you've got Shopify. Um, and apparently there are other startups. Uh, apparently there's one here called Bolt, which I don't know myself, but um, that's another competitor in this space, which has also created software to enable a single click checkout process. Um, the discussions come only one year after the company raised um, only 2.5 million, and that was just a seed round, and seven months after it raised uh, 20 million in financing from Stripe at a valuation of $180 million. So what do we think? Is this realistic, or do we think we're, we have a, a, a somebody in charge who likes to generate headlines? I don't know the company, so I actually can't speak to this <laughs> myself. It's, it's just fascinating. The COVID, we say this constantly, COVID is an accelerant, right? It's, it's an accelerant when it comes to digital banking. We've seen numbers from Chime, you know, Moneyline, Borrow, and everything else, challenger banks here in the U.S. that have done incredibly well. We've seen digital account opening, you know, for the major banks go up. And we've seen retail just get absolutely hammered um, in some cases, right? Those, those retailers that were ready did incredibly well. Home Depot, for example, Walmart, Target, you know, where you could order by phone and drive up and pick up, you know, and I have to go in store, that type of concept. They did incredibly well because they invested in technology and are ready for it. So I think, especially with everything around COVID, companies like this are going to get a ton of attention. I mean, it's just flat out, this is the hot thing right now. Um, and I'm speaking specifically for the U.S. I, I had jokingly talked about buy now, pay later, but it's the same with this, right? Anything that simplifies the shopping experience is going to get a ton of attention. Um, they, this story, though, is just like their name. It's fast. Man, that's a quick period of time <laughs> to get an evaluation and an, an investment like they're seeing. So I would say that side of it makes me slightly nervous. I mean, I've I, I've never been able to understand fintech valuations. I have to tell you that the, the speed and size at which they go and who gets what have never quite made a lot of sense to me. But I'm not an investor. I don't I don't run a, a VC firm, so you know what would I know? Um, Mike, what are your thoughts on this? I, I had a really kind of fascinating moment reflecting on this story here. Um, you know, Galileo was founded 20 years ago and just recently had its you know um, just slightly above a billion dollar um, exit here. And to see a company do this in two years, I mean, hat tip that they could beat us by an order of magnitude in terms of total speed to, to that kind of outcome. Uh, but I think it really speaks to if you have good product market fit, and then to Sam's point, if you can really kind of position yourself well, uh, and you've got your surfboard in the water right when the wave hits, um, and you know, COVID has been a massive kind of windfall for this company in terms of being well positioned for, for you know, kind of the trends that are going on right now. I mean, Michael, think about it, and, and Emily and Sarah, I mean, in December, if I would have told you Zoom was going to be worth more than ExxonMobil, you would have laughed my ass right off of this call, you know? Well, to a certain extent, yes, but what I was going to say is that they face such stiff competition. That that's that's where I struggle with this. Like I, I completely agree that companies that are well placed have, have done incredibly well, but I can't think of a company. So to your point about Zoom, I can't think of a company that was as well placed as Zoom to do what it did. We all know about Skype. We've all tried to use Skype and we've all bashed our head against the table. Um, Google Hangouts is great, but the functionality is slightly more limited. There are kind of more restrictions around using it. I know there are other platforms out there as well, but I just feel with this, they're newer. They're not as well established. I don't really know the brand. I do know PayPal's brand. I do know Amazon's brand. I do know Google's brand. And I have no doubt, you know, that Visa and MasterCard are, are working on this as well. Amex has already got something similar. So I just don't buy that they could get that big that quick with an idea that in a market that's so well saturated and I can't see um, a way in which they differentiate from the others, but maybe there's something I'm missing. Um, Emily, I'm going to let you comment on this before I just continue ranting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to remember, so I may have to double check this later or you can just, you know, wipe it if it's not correct. Um, but one of the big payment giants, I think either Visa or MasterCard has actually also taken a stake recently in Bolt, the company that we mentioned at the top. Um, and it's so, I mean, payment companies are really doing well out of this. There was a report from Forrester that came out, uh, I think, on Thursday 
um, that said that fintech deals in particular are really the only thing that's having any movement at the moment uh, in VC. And actually, probably the US and Europe are just really capitalizing all, on all that. There was a stat that I found really interesting was that China has yet to report a deal in fintech this year, at least with VC or private money. If the Ant Group IPO goes ahead, that might be a little bit different. <laughs> um, but uh, so really, there's just so much activity going on here in investment. And it's unsurprising that at least if you're thinking about how every investor is trying to make sure that they're getting to the right company and that their round is the one that stands out versus the next, putting a big pricey billion dollar tag on it, or at least the rumor of one, because this isn't confirmed, um, it's probably a good way to go about it. We're talking about it, so... Yeah, yeah. Why not? I suppose that's, that's a good. That's a good point. You know, you make enough noise, and 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 people will hear it. Um, I don't know. I think it's yes. It's probably it's probably definitely gonna. We're gonna keep an eye on it and see whether actually it proves to be a true statement or not later on. I think it's quite early to say. And we did say we weren't going to make any predictions today, so we'll um, we'll just watch it cautiously. Um, so the next story today is that Barclays has launched an accelerator for Black-founded tech firms. So uh, it will be a 12-week virtual accelerator program designed to help early-stage tech businesses founded by black entrepreneurs. The bank is working with social enterprise Foundervine on the accelerator, which will work with 25 black founder-led technology firms from the 12th of November. The program will include a series of masterclasses focused on a number of core business skills, including product development, sales strategy, operations and leadership, and the founders will be mentored by and receive professional coaching from scale-up experts. Participants will also gain access to Barclays UK-wide Eagle Labs network and exclusive access to community events through those labs, presumably virtual ones the way the world's going. Um, after 12 weeks, a demo day will see the founders present their business to potential clients and investors. A spokesperson for Barclays says that having worked with and supported founders and startups for a number of years, she has seen the lack of diversity and especially within black entrepreneurs. Um, so... Is this a step in the right direction or does it, does it, I mean, some people find um, some of these initiatives a little bit uncomfortable. Um, so what, what do we think about this? So as I um, kind of listen to the story, I, you know, the first thought that came to my mind is when you talk to successful people, they're very quick to recognize that it was um, kind of the serendipitous combination of a set of internal um, factors, whether that be their, you know, kind of mental acuity or their drive. Um, as well as some external factors such as mentorship and formal training. I think, you know, this this type of program um, brings together those two types of things in a way that can be very helpful for, for um, often for groups that, that do not have that same access um, as, as uh, a broader set of things. It, it, for sure, it can sometimes be uh, awkward, but, but uh, you know, in my estimation, it actually helps drive meaningful progress. Sorry, Sam, you go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I mean, I agree. Um, it's, uh, and Michael, I think we were talking before the show, you you spent some time in Atlanta and I spent at least a good decade in Atlanta. So you know the scene there well, right? When it comes to banking, when it comes to tech, um, you get some great historical black colleges that are there in Atlanta. When it comes to civil rights is really the, in my opinion, the heartbeat of the U.S. Um, when it comes to success, it's a combination of so many things. Timing, for one, but your network and who you know and who you mentor means so much. You know, I mean, uh, the the CEO of Wells, Fargo caught a lot of grief, um, you know, over the summer for saying that they were missing some of their diversity targets in hiring because there wasn't enough qualified black candidates. Um, and it, it, and rightfully so, caught a lot of grief for that statement. And I always found it interesting because the right when that happened, uh, somebody posted a background on the CEO who, while he was still a senior at John Hopkins University, he started working part-time at J.P. Morgan Chase, having sent his resume to Jamie Dimon through family connections. Um, okay, that just speaks for itself, right? And no knock on him for having those connections, but success in business has to do a ton with who do you know, what network do you know? And so I think programs like this help. Um, and I like seeing it not only for um, black business owners and entrepreneurs, but also women and minorities. And you take your pick. I think the more that we can do to help with that and set up programs like this, the better, personally. 
Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's definitely a, a positive outlook, and and I agree with the principle. I just wanted to pull out some um, a, a quote here that's included in my notes, which um, says, according to research from Ten by Ten's Black Report, Black founders are over mentored and under invested. So only twenty three point three percent of Black founders receive grant funding for the early stage startup, and only twenty two percent receive VC funding. And this is something I, I cannot possibly speak to to the lived experience of of, of people of color, but. As a woman, there are parallels to be drawn that there are many, many female entrepreneurs out there who know exactly what they're doing, but they cannot get the investment they need to get their businesses off the ground. And and there is, there. I'm sorry, but there is a case for saying that a lot of the people who are listening to those pitches simply don't believe that women will be successful, however good their pitch. It's not always the case. And there are absolutely benefits to be had from having a network and being introduced to the right people. But I do wonder if maybe... Along with this, what Barclays could have done is set aside a pot of money for investing in these companies and said, right, yeah. we're going to do both because both of these things are equally necessary. Now, the mentoring, you probably can get elsewhere, but we have money. So we're going to put that aside for your businesses. Um, Sam, I'll, I'll let you follow up on that. And then Emily, I'll come around to you. Yeah, it's a great quote from a good friend of mine, Ramona Ortega um, out of New York. And I love Ramona. Does a ton with the Latino and black communities there. Has her own startup. And she talks about that quite a bit. She's like, yeah, thanks for all the mentorship training. How about some investment money? I mean, flat out. And she's hilarious when she says it, but she's also not scurrying around when she says it. You know, the sheer number of pitches that she gives and also a lot of blank looks because not understanding the product, you know, um, and what she's trying to do because the folks that she's trying to raise money from typically look like me. And listeners, if you don't know what I look like, I'm a 50-year-old white male, slightly balding. So there you go. I could be a poster child, I think, for some of venture capital out there. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I think, I think you know, getting getting access to that money is just so crucial and we have to look at the barriers that exist to that for minority groups across the board. Um, Emily, your, your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, I think you're definitely right, Sarah. Like, they, the, the Barclays are saying that at the end of the 12 weeks, the founders will get to present their business in a demo day to potential clients and investors. And Sometimes with these kinds of schemes, the people running the scheme are also among that audience of investors. So Barclays may well be sitting there and thinking, yeah, we're going to invest. But they should be putting that money up front and saying, here's actually what we're going to do to support you. We've seen other banks do that with their accelerators. So why can't that happen here as well? Um, And it almost feels a bit like they don't want to take their chances. They don't want to have to back businesses they may not like if they... It's a bit like a fluffy PR thing, mm. whereas actually this should be a real initiative that should be happening back to back cohorts. This is, if we're actually going to make any change, it needs to be consistent, not just a one off spur of the moment capitalizing on the current discussion around black lives at the, and the way that we all need to do our part in uplifting people of color across the industry. And, and that is a little bit what this is like. There's a, there's a tang of virtue signaling about it, I think, um, which we we've seen kind of across the board, which is which is a little bit sad. Um, and I think the other thing you probably have to you know we have to consider is that for these people to have gotten far enough for Barclays to even look at their you know application, I guarantee you they've had to work ten times harder than I have. Um, and that again goes across the board. Um, you know, I, I, as I said, I don't have the lived experience, but I if they've got that far and they've they've done that much, then they've had so many barriers in the way that they will have had to have worked harder than, than an awful lot of people. For example, whose uncle knows a chap at JP Morgan um, who, who looks a lot like you, Sam. Um, Emily, I'll, I'll let you have the final point. Yeah, I was just going to respond to you. Like, it, it, it's almost like you can't just launch a 12-week virtual accelerator program for early stage tech businesses. You've got to have a more well-rounded um, response to the issues that we're facing from start to finish, you've got to be thinking about how can we get more black kids into proper education, get them the places that they need to be getting work experience so they can start to meet people and think about things like starting if they could start their own business and getting tech skills, coding skills, all of those things are really important drivers at the moment, which probably kids from um, underprivileged backgrounds just aren't receiving. You can't just think about, okay, well, here's where we might be able to get the most juice out of it as an investor potentially. So here's where we're going to put all our money. You've got to think about the full spectrum of presenting your aid because Marcus is a company with a lot of money. It's got a lot of resources. Why can't it be the one to help? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a really uh, good point. Um, we'll, we'll, so we'll we'll leave that there because I think that's I think that's a call to action for Barclays if they are listening. Um, all right, so now we're going to move on as we're getting towards the end of the show, and just to uh, finish, we're going to round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover, but which still deserved a shout out. Sam, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Our first story comes from Finn Extra. We report that Hong Kong prepares for the next era of fintech. The Hong Kong Central Bank is exploring new data strategy and considering building a new financial infrastructure called the Commercial Data Exchange, or CDI. This is to enable more efficient financial intermediation in the banking system. The CDI is a consent-based financial infrastructure that would enable more secure and efficient data flow between banks and sources of commercial data. The HKMA also laid out a two-year roadmap aimed at fostering a more diverse and interactive regtech ecosystem in Hong Kong. Eddie Yu says the initiatives are examples of HKMA's focus on applying technology to achieve better banking and drive financial inclusion in the region. So just a couple of quick thoughts. Uh, This announcement came at the opening keynote uh, for the Hong Kong FinTech Week, their virtual conference. That's a nice way to kick off a conference by basically saying, hey, uh, we're the government and we're going to build our own infrastructure to drive open banking. (laughs) It's not a bad thing, but just interesting, right? Um, You know, we're going to build an open banking ecosystem. We're going to set the terms instead of the private sector coming in. So I I did a little digging, Sarah. I know how much you love numbers. This is just for you. Um, I discovered there are 160 licensed banks, including eight virtual banks in Hong Kong. (laughs) Damn. Uh, So again, interesting approach. We'll see how this, this plays out as compared to the approach the EU or the U.S. has taken on open banking and data security. Yeah, H- the HKMA has uh, has has said a lot recently, but it would be nice to see it doing a little bit more. So hopefully, this is the beginning of that. Um, the next story um, comes from the BBC News, and it's that in the UK, the credit card freeze has been extended for six months ahead of the new, uh, well, the new English lockdown. It's not a UK lockdown. Um, payment holidays on credit cards, car finance, personal loans, and pawned goods have been extended ahead of tougher coronavirus restrictions for up to six months. Uh, short-term credit, such as payday loans, can defer for one month. The FCA has said that credit consumers who can afford to do so should continue to pay and that borrowers should only take on this support if they really need it. The payment holidays will also apply to those with uh, rent to own and buy now, pay later deals. So anyone already benefiting from a payment deferral will be able to apply for a second deal. I think the point the FCA makes about, um, you know, if you can afford to keep paying, you should definitely keep paying is a really important one here. I think there's possibly a tendency on people to seize upon the idea of not paying back um, a loan right now, but without thinking about the fact that that loan will continue to accrue interest and they are going to have to pay it back eventually. Um, It's something that I would like to see a lot more of is uh, financial propositions, um, talking not just about how to save more or invest more, but how to manage debt and savings and and holistic financial health. And, And I think the FCA is um, got its eye on that and it's going to be encouraging that from financial providers. And our next story comes from CNBC. Um, they report that SoFi has launched its first ever credit card, giving SoFi members the opportunity to earn cash back on their purchases, which they can use to pay off loans, save, or invest through the SoFi platform. The all-new SoFi credit card rewards cardholders when they use the cash back earned from purchases to improve their financial big picture. Card members receive 1% cash back on all eligible purchases to pay down eligible SoFi student or personal loan debt. You see what they did there, folks? Similar to setting up autopay, members can enable automated redemptions into their SoFi accounts. So, I mean, SoFi is an interesting company. Um, interestingly enough, they've opened up a rather large office here in Jacksonville, where I live. Uh, most people have no clue. I live in Northeast um, Florida. It's a long way from San Francisco, everybody. Um, the, SoFi has somewhere around 700,000 active users, 7.5 million registered accounts for their various products. And earlier this year, their CEO, Anthony Noto, he talked about a shift in their strategy to go from their bread and butter customers, which are basically Stanford, you know, Harvard, Yale grads, to an everyman approach, which I like to call the Goldman Sachs Marcus effect, you know, moving to a different customer base. And I can't fault them for this because, you know, that's, that's where we're at right now. So it'll be interesting to see it's a good opportunity for them to be able to cross sell a product where they can make money on. And it's also uh, well done on them on the rewards program that they tied with this. That idea of being able to pay down my my student loans with the redemption points is a very interesting and circular type approach. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, it ties back very neatly to my idea that, that financial providers should be encouraging people to pay down debt where it's appropriate. So um, what a lovely circle right now. Our and finally story 
I am going to read and then I'm going to hand over to Sam because I'm not entirely sure I understand most of what's going on here, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Mesut Ozil has joined US venture capital firm Class 5 Global. So, right. Arsenal midfielder Mesut Ozil is joining San Francisco-based VC firm Class 5 Global as a strategic advisor, having already been an investor as he looks to a career beyond football. Ozil's future at Arsenal apparently remains in doubt. Apparently his contract is due to expire at the end of the current season. I've no idea when that is. He hasn't played since March. I think that's probably bad. He was left out of the 25-man Premier League squad at the end of the transfer window. Again, sounds bad. Not entirely sure. Rumours of his retirement are circling. Um, Class 5's managing partner said world-class athletes bring a unique perspective on the future of consumer preferences. Um, I, I, how old is this chap, Sam? Oh, he's young. Uh, he's early 30s. Um, so he is he is a world-class athlete. He's past his prime, though. Um, incredible football player. Uh, helped Germany uh, win their World Cup. One of the most creative players that ever played. And Arsenal paid a ton for him to come and play. Uh, helped them win a couple FA Cups. But again, getting on in, in age and Arsenal being the incredibly smart football team that they are, signed him to an incredibly expensive contract. And now he sits and doesn't play whatsoever. So very typical for the team that I absolutely love to do. I think that's so sarcasm, right? That's sarcasm. Yes, that's yeah, U.S. Okay, sarcasm, eking yeah. out to say, yeah, why okay. would you pay this much money for somebody who sits on the bench and doesn't play? Good for him, though. I actually see two things in this. One, um, more than likely, he'll play in the U.S. Typically, if you play in Europe, you do your farewell tour in the U.S. and do quite well, and it'll make a ton of money. Good for him. And two, the dude's got all kind of time in his hands. He's not playing. So what the hell? Um, I mean, it's interesting to see world-class athletes get into venture capital. I mean, typically you're looking at folks like Ashton Kutcher, right? Actors that are in venture capital. And by the way, he's done some great investments, right? Um, so it's interesting to see athletes move in this space. Serena Williams in the U.S. is probably the best example I can give. She actually has her own VC firm. Um, they've invested in companies like uh, Coinbase, for example. Um, and I think her sister Venus now is also getting into this space. So seeing athletes move into VC, to me, I, I get it. They have a lot of money um, that they can bring to it. They bring a perspective. And there's been folks that have been incredibly successful. Magic Johnson from the LA Lakers, he was a basketball player, Sarah, has done incredibly well. He's made a shit ton more money outside of basketball than he ever made playing in his investment properties. But isn't so good there, on him. Yeah, I, I, I get that they've got a lot of money and that, you know, uh, you know, putting it putting into this kind of investment probably makes sense because if you have to retire when you're 31, then you probably do need something to live <laughs> off for the rest of your life. I do kind of get exactly. that. I'm on it. And he has got a lot of money by the sounds of things. But there's a difference between being an investor and being a strategic advisor on the future of consumer preferences. And I wonder what perspective this young man has. I don't know his background, to be fair. And I do know footballers come from all sorts of backgrounds. So it may be something different. But Serena Williams, for example, I know that she has a background that probably does give her an interesting perspective on some interesting, uh, on, on the you know, future consumer preferences, um, particularly going back to our earlier conversation, minority groups, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I, I don't know if there's a, what, you know, what qualifies him as an advisor <laughs> here. I understand Easily. what qualifies him as an investor. He's oh, because very he's the best simple. football player in the world. <laughs> Because Sorry. he plays, no, it's because he played for Arsenal. We're just not going to say a damn bad thing about this guy, everybody. He helped us win the FA Cup after he went through about a decade wrong drought. I refuse to say anything poorly. You're not going to get me to do it. Just like predictions, I refuse to go there. Good luck, Masood. I love you, man. Give me a call, please. We'll put him on the show. Uh, okay. Uh, well, that escalated. Does anybody else have any perspectives on sports Sports people moving into uh, investment after they've retired or indeed before they retire? Yeah, so I, I would look at this and, you know, there is there is a kind of um, long history that for every kind of successful one of these, you have a lot kind of a litter along the path who are much more kind of in the marketing domain of, of you know, kind of good decoration for the front office and, and not actually kind of doing a lot of, call it strategic advisory. Um, there are some notable exceptions. Uh, Sam's called out some. I'll call out uh, Steve Young, who, you know, um, went into the private equity space on, on kind of an enterprise software-based uh, fund and, and has driven kind of double-digit returns there kind of year over year. But, um, you know, it, I, I kind of echo Sam's thesis here, which is you got money, you got time. Why not give it a shot? And if nothing else, it'll be great for the firm's marketing. Well, that is assuming that they know who this chap is, given that they're American and he plays for Arsenal, which I'm fairly sure is an English team. Emily, I'm going to give you the final word on this. 
just yeah, because I mean, Sam it, doesn't get it. <laughs> sometimes the advice can be pretty useful, I think, for these firms. Like if you if we take a look at David Beckham, who he founded or co-founded, most likely um, Guild Esports, which is a big esports team company here in the UK, um, and they've just gone public on the London Stock Exchange this last month. Um, he probably doesn't have a lot to provide in terms of knowledge about esports gaming or knowledge about how to take a company public or any of any of those useful things but where he can be useful is almost in terms of creative thinking so one thing that guild esports is doing is that they want to start trying to spot talent for their esports teams and cultivate that talent using a similar structure to the talent academies used by football teams across the UK so they'll start trying to spot teams and train them that way and that's all something that David Beckham is really familiar with because I'm I'm, all, I'm not I'm not a big football person but I'm pretty sure I remember he was also found that way he did it like a talent academy back in the day with the Rangers so um sometimes anyway these sports expertise can be really useful <laughs> All right, Sam. I have a valid point. Okay, Emily just gave us a very nicely rounded uh, conclusion there. So please, yes, go ahead. But if it's not valid, I'm speaking to Alex. It's incredibly valid. Um, The one thing I think that uh, Masood can uh, bring, actually, and it's very interesting, a very hot sector is Sharif Fintech. So we're talking about banking solutions in the Muslim community. And Masood Ozil, um, he's, he's Turkish originally, but, you know, lived in Germany, but he is very well known in the Muslim world because he's a very outspoken um, advocate and uh, and very well respected. So when you think about doors opening for a VC firm for a very specific area where we know there's a ton of development and money going into, that would be the avenue I went down if I was advising that VC firm. I think there's some doors Masood could open definitely that otherwise a VC firm in San Francisco is not going to get. Okay, Sam, I take it back. That is a very valid point. And Sharia finance is an area that has been totally underinvested in and it is a huge market, um, which is which is there for the taking of anybody who can do it, approach it sensitively and in the right way. So we will leave it there. Um, that wraps up this week's show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Emily? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Emily J. Nicole and you can read all our stories at fnlondon.com or if you work for an investment bank that pays for our paper, we land on your desk every Monday. So pick one of those up. Brilliant. Mike, how about you? Uh, on LinkedIn, uh, Michael Douglas, uh, Vice President of Strategy at Galileo. Uh, also, of course, our corporate website, uh, galileo-ft.com. The FT is for financial technologies. Perfect. And Sam, how about you? Um, at Sam all on Twitter, same on LinkedIn, but I'll be taking a nap for the next couple of days. So just... You know, I, I will get back to you eventually. Yeah, eventually. Cool. All right. Well, um, on that note, uh, that's it for today. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Uh, we should also thank Chris Skinner for coming back and updating his thoughts on the Ant IPO. Um, and also thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It does help to make it better and it helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.